What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I'm here with my my co-host Kate Riga, and you know we have one of these periods. I was just kind of before we started the episode today. When we do that, I try to kind of put together in my head like what's happening right now, right? Like where are we in the political news, in politics, between elections, stuff like that. And uh, usually, it kind of comes to me pretty quickly, and then I do you know a little kind of off the cuff rundown of stuff before we get into the show proper. And this time, I was thinking it. You know, kind of everything is going on right now, but everything's kind of slowed down and kind of not happening. So, like, you know, we we know that um, we know that we're you know there's there's a Republican nomination campaign coming up, and everybody's kind of getting ready for it, but it hasn't really started yet. Right. Um, And uh, we know, you know, there are all these cases with Donald Trump, legal case, you know, uh, uh, investigations with Donald Trump. Um, And a lot of them seem to be coming to a head, but they haven't yet. Now, some of you are probably thinking kind of in this deep self-whomping mode. Well, nothing's ever going to happen, man. He gets away with everything anyway. And maybe he will. That's entirely possible. Um, but at least those, those, those probes are, are getting to their, getting to their endpoint. You have the one down in Atlanta. Uh, you've, you've, you've got the, the, the one about January 6th, you've got the one about the documents down in, in, in Mar-a-Lago that this man of mystery, Jack Smith, is, uh, you know, is, is, um, is, is working on. And then you've got, you know, you've got the, you've got that debt limit thing hanging out there. That's coming. And you've got all the Hunter Biden investigations, but everything is kind of they're they're all coming but we seem to be in a in a, in a you know we're we're um we're kind of sailing but there's no wind at the moment everything is kind of at a feels like at at a at a at a bit of a standstill to me um in any case we we do have some stuff that is you know uh happening in a more immediate sense we had these supreme court uh oral arguments yesterday where uh the big thing that came up was uh, President Biden's uh, college debt, school debt cancellation program, and not surprisingly, the the justices made pretty clear that they're not very impressed. 
you know, not by the the legal theory of the case or by the lazy bums who want their college debt forgiven. Right. Like, why'd you go to college if you if you didn't have the money? Why didn't you set up? A, why didn't you become a, 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 um, a landscaper and do something real with your life as opposed to sitting around reading Shakespeare all day? Or I guess Shakespeare's been canceled. So you couldn't read Shakespeare. Anyway, that was kind of what we heard from uh, from the uh, the high court justices. And we're going to talk about that. And then we also, you know, kind of along the lines of we're in this kind of slow moving period. We're also going to talk about you had this uh, you had this op ed in The Times by this guy, Greg Craig, who used to be kind of like a sort of a luminary in 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 the democratic legal world he was the uh he was one of the impeachment lawyers for uh, bill clinton 25 years ago or whenever that was and he was uh, barack obama's uh white house counsel i think he was his first i'm not sure if he was his first but i think it was sort of universally agreed it didn't go great and i think he he got bounced after about a year or something like i can't remember exactly in any case he wrote this op-ed in the times saying basically uh, you know, Joe Biden, super old, big issue. Democrats can't uh, run away from this. They have to deal with this. Um, you know, experts I've spoken to say that uh, an 80 year old man is more likely to die than a 70 year old man. And when I read that, I was like, Greg, man. You're on top of the science, dude. Like, like, no kidding. Of course, of course. I mean, who are the experts who didn't agree on that? In any case, um, so he comes up with the idea: the way to deal with this, we have to deal with the succession. So Joe Bi- Joe Biden should say, "I'm going to leave it up to Democratic voters to decide who my vice president is. I'm going to let them, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to." deal them into the decision making because this is this is this is such a big question and uh you know blah 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 and and i was just again it's an example of sort of like clearly we don't have anything real to talk about right now because this is the op-eds that we are dealing with now let me say this joe biden is an old guy 80 is old you look at joe biden today he looks different than he did 15 years ago there's no question Everybody who's 80 is 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 a little slower than they were uh, maybe even five years before, certainly 10, 20 years before. There's also no question that it is an issue for him politically. There's no question. Um, a lot of a lot of um, I think it's true that I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I, I sometimes I sometimes get a uh, a sort of a read on where non non politically involved people are politically and one way i get that is is actually through my sons who are teenagers neither of whom are political i mean i'm in a family of totally non-political people basically it's i've been i've been rejected as a as a as a, as, as a political influencer within my family um in any case though but what they do is they 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 they're constantly on social media and the social media uh, of, of the youngs, right? They're on TikTok, stuff like this. So what they get 
out of all this is occasionally, you know, they're seeing the videos of like Joe Biden stammering or something like, oh, man, he's old. He's pretty old. It is an issue. There's no question about that. It is also a fact he's going to run for reelection. And that is just a fact. And even if you hate Joe Biden, it doesn't matter because he is the nominee. Absolutely. And I will tell you, uh, you have to go back to um, you have to go back to Franklin Roosevelt for uh, I mean, which is a totally different era and totally different thing. He kind of mixed it up each basically uh, each election, a new, a new vice president, sort of like a game show or something like that. It doesn't happen. You, you run with your vice president. That is just how it is. And Greg Craig wrote this piece and never and never seemed to never seemed to even address the fact that all this means is you're firing Kamala Harris. And maybe Kamala Harris is ter- terrible. Maybe she should be fired. But that's what it is. It's not like, hey, I'm not firing her. Just letting everybody take a choice. Hey, what's the problem with that? And, you know, kind of like, this is an idea that is so deeply stupid that I, 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 I had to sort of compose myself before I even thought about it when I was reading it. Because first of all, the one benefit that you have, one benefit that you have as an incumbent is you don't have a primary cycle where you're going to spend a ton of money you know, air all sorts of intra-party antagonisms and stuff like that. It's all done. You've got your team, right? So why you would do that for absolutely no reason at all is, is a pretty open question. But if you think about it, if you do this bizarre, unprecedented, because again, it wasn't like, it wasn't like Franklin Roosevelt decided to like, you know, told Henry Wallace, like, Henry, I'm going to let, I'm going to let voters kind of, uh, um, figure this out. And then, you know, Harry Truman, he decided it himself with some power brokers and stuff like that. In any case, if you did this totally unprecedented, bizarre thing, you would be framing the entire campaign around, we think Joe Biden's going to be dead by 2026. So we need to kind of really think through who the new president's going to be because this dude is so, is so fucking old. Um, he's, you know, he might even be dead now. You, you, you turn the whole campaign. I mean, it's an issue. You got to confront, you know, you got to deal with that issue. You got to, you got to realize it's an issue. You've got to uh, address it in whatever way you can. And I think the way you can is you, is, is you have people and Joe Biden say, yeah, I'm old, but I'm doing pretty well. And the other, and the other team totally sucks. And that's kind of just how it is because I'm president and presidents run for reelection. And that's how it is. So in any case, I, I, you know, uh, uh, I don't know what Greg Craig uh, was thinking, but it shows you this is kind of we're in that kind of um, uh, uh, you know funny business period where nothing else is going on. So we have so people come up with inane uh, ideas to come up with, and I will say I did hear from some people who are kind of let's call them. DC Democratic insiders who are telling me, uh, look, look, man, the word is what's really going on here is the word is that, you know, uh, n- no one, no one on the inside thinks that Kamala can, she's not a good, she's not a, she can't run an organization. 
And so they're trying to kind of throw, you know, uh, send up flags saying, hey, we got, you know, she, she can't, she can't get this done, blah, 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 blah. I have no idea if that's true. I have the slightest idea if that's true. I see articles kind of like, oh, she's got staff turnover, blah, 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 blah. Um, I have been a little down on her political abilities since the primary campaigns. I didn't think she ran a great primary campaign. And that was kind of an issue for me. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Because you know what? She's going to run for vice president. And that's just how it is. And 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 no matter what kind of moronic idea you have to kind of talk about something that is not going to happen, that's just how it is. So everybody's got to deal with that. And you know what? Um, uh, if, if Joe Biden wins re-election and then there are primaries in 2020, uh, not 2024, 2028, God, it's getting years are advancing here uh they'll have a primary and yeah kamala harris will have some advantages but not totally and that just is what it is and if he loses um you know same difference so with all of that with all of that said let me remind you of something else and that is that the josh marshall podcast is brought to you by grady's cold brew ice coffee and here's the thing Grady's cold brew kit makes it easy to drink delicious coffee on the go. You just toss in some bean bags and add water, stick the pouch in the fridge overnight, and you'll get smooth, flavorful coffee all week long. Ready to give it a swirl? But before you give it a swirl, I've, I've used these a lot. They're to they totally work. It's a great system. You just, you know, especially for me, since I have to, I have to, um, I have to manage coffee supply in our house. You know, it used to be, it was basically just me, heavy coffee consumer. And my wife who drinks coffee, but like is one of these like lightweights who's like, Oh, I'm only drinking coffee in the first half of the day. Cause Oh, I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to get too wired in the evening and stuff like that. But now I've got these teenage boys and they drink it too. So it's a serious issue. So I have to make sure there's coffee for myself in the morning and not have some like train wreck if I wake up and like, there's no coffee or something like that. So anyway, this helps me do it. And you really can, you get, you get this. It's a, it's like a, it's like a kind of like a reinforced plastic bag. Uh, you put these bean bags in it, which are in these kind of like, you know, kind of like a mega tea bag, but it's coffee, um, coffee bags. Did I say tea bags? Uh, you put it in, put it in overnight and you got great coffee. So it totally works. So in any case, uh, if you're ready to give it a swirl, get 25% off at Grady's cold brew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady's cold brew.com with promo code TPM. Okay. Kate Riga, that was a pretty antic introduction and I had to kind of just keep it real with Greg Craig since <laughs> I don't know what that was about. What do you, what do you got going on? What are you thinking? Yeah. All right. We'll start with Greg Craig then. Um, whose name sounds entirely made up to me, but I, I re I read the piece at the time and then I reread it just before we got on. And I, th oh, there's so much stuff that's w so weird about it. I think one of the most laughable lines is he says like, and for any of you who like Kamala, don't worry, you know, she'll probably still win. And then she'll come out battle tested and politically stronger. And it's like, why would a, pu a president publicly and, you know, largely without modern precedent saying, I'm not so sure about her. I'm going to I'm going to have people do some like sack races to, just to see just just to check. Like, why in the world would that make her politically stronger? It would be it would be. It, <laughs> it's such an unprecedented rejection 
Yeah. You know, the last time it happened was uh, almost exactly 80 years ago in 1944. And there's a bit of a backstory here because people people did not know that FDR was going to die basically two months into his into his fourth term or two months, three months, something like that very soon. Um, uh, but they knew he was ill. That was not a that was not a uh, unknown, even though he was a relatively young man. I believe he was in his early 60s. In any case, uh, he had a vice president, Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace was a big, big, big standard bearer of the left. Now, everybody thinks now, oh, the left likes FDR, blah, 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 blah. This is a different political time. Um, and it's a very complex uh, historical question. But Henry Wallace was very, was very left. Um, and people were looking towards the end of the war, his ideas about the Soviet Union, blah, 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 blah. And that was one reason why people were not crazy about the idea that he might be on the ticket uh, in 1944. And that's why we got Harry Truman. In any case, it wasn't seen as like, oh, Harry was totally cool about it. People like the Nation magazine are still upset about it 80 years, you know, 80 years on. It was a huge deal. It's such a rejection. And and like no one would buy like, I just kind of feel like given that I'm ancient and probably will be dead within the next six months, I'd like Democrats to kind of choose uh, who will who will succeed me after my imminent demise. Uh, it's not I don't think anything negative of Kamala. I mean, come on. Not I mean, to mention. Maybe, yeah. Voters already picked her. They won the first term when she was on the ticket. This idea of like, well, I must give voters a say. I mean, obviously, she's not the top of the ticket. The president's the top of the ticket, but she's also not trying to be president right now. So the whole thing, this this idea of like, you know, I, I just I want to make this a more democratic process. Guess what? It was. And you guys won. <laughs> So, I mean, and then on top of that, this part just really I had to pause and, and take a breath. He says, allowing Democratic voters to pick the vice presidential nominee might address the Democrats enthusiasm gap. If the status quo continues, no one on the Democratic side will excite or inspire the crowd. OK, and then he transitions into talking about what these scintillating matchups might be and this vice presidential death match. And it's like Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg. And no offense <laughs> to people who like Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, you know, they're great. But is that the barn burning like candidates, once in a generation candidates that will light people's hair on fire. Like that's who you can muster. Yeah. If, if, if anything, if there was anybody who you would say, okay, this is someone who, who there's, you know, Gretchen Whitmer, you know, has, has, has done, you know, spectacularly well in a really tough state, blah, 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 blah. Did I remind you, this is not happening. But again, if you're gonna if you're gonna speculate, you know something like that. And and but even the the basic premise, if like if the problem is that Joe Biden is so old that it's just like you you know it's un it's it's it cannot be done. Are people gonna say like ah? Oh, He's old, and I don't know if he can even string a sentence together. But now that we've had a contested vice presidential election, I'm feeling better. Because when he dies, which is obviously momentarily, since he's ancient, uh, we will have this. Uh, what, are we, what are we talking about? It's too I, dumb. I also just do think at a more subliminal level, like this is really playing into some 
I think kind of racist and misogynistic under uh, themes that are kind of underlining this conversation, because is Biden old? Like, definitely. You, you cannot get around that. But Trump is only, what, four like three, years younger? Three or four years younger, yeah. And it did not come up for Trump in the same way. And it I mean, it at least it at least begs the question, would we be having the same agita over Biden's age if the VP was a white man and not a black woman? Like, how much does that play into what's going on here? It, you know, it's 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 one of these things that is, you know, to some level. Absolutely. But it's also hard because let's let's think about it in the more concrete sense. I think some some Democrats th look. I have some questions whether she can run her own presidential, can win her own presidential campaign. So I have some misgivings about her being kind of queued up as the, you know, as the heir apparent in, in, in 2028. But I mean, we've made that choice. That, that, that's, that's done. I mean, not that she'll be the presidential nominee, but she's the vice president. It just is what it is. And it's not going to, and, 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 and that is not going to change. So it's, it's, it's possible that she's not, uh, you know, electorally strong enough a politician, you know, she's also a black woman. She could also be, that could, both can be true. Right. Um, I, I, I will say this, what, what, um, to the extent that it is that we are worried about his age, I'm not remotely worried about her becoming president. That's totally fine. If anything, it would raise her stature a lot. The vice presidency is a deeply diminishing. Everybody who becomes vice president gets diminished by it. Occasionally, someone can kind of you know parlay it and parlay it into something else. Um, it has to figure in to the equation. Um, the only thing I would say is that it's also possible that she has shortcomings, right? They can both, they can, they can, they can both be true. Right. I just think in terms of, we don't know if she can run a presidential campaign, totally true. And I think that's pretty much the case with all vice presidents. You usually don't end up in the vice presidential slot because you were running gangbusters in the primary, right? Like <laughs> you clearly had some stuff to iron out. So, I mean, I just think this kind of intensive hand wringing over, you know, what is the Democratic Party's future if she is the heir apparent is just, first of all, so preemptive. Second of all, okay, maybe we get into 28 and it's like Kamala is going to run. It's her time. And if she, that doesn't guarantee she's going to be uncontested, right? We don't really well, have a history of people being like, you know what, you waited your turn, go, go right ahead. Yeah, no, look, there's, uh, that is absolutely the case. And, um, I'm not terribly worried about 2028 because it, you're, you're going to have a primary and a, a good way to figure out if someone has the chops to run a presidential campaign is to see them run a primary campaign. And my slight misgivings about her electoral chops is because I didn't think she ran a great primary campaign when she was really kind of lined up in a lot of ways. She had the money. She had a big state behind, you know, all the kind of all the kind of stuff. Um, but I mean, if she's that bad, presumably she won't win the nomination and the yeah. problem kind of takes care of itself. Uh, and, um, you know, with <laughs> the, the other thing, you know, someone, I can't remember who, who pointed this out to me and it's, it's an obvious point, but it was one of these obvious points. That's good to hear directly. 
it's okay if the president dies. That's why we have a vice president. That's the only reason we have a vice president. I mean, seriously, there's no other reason to have one. There's this little bizarre thing where they, you know, cast a tie-breaking vote in the Senate. But I mean, that is the one job. So the fact that they might have to do the one job is not like, oh my God, you know, um, it is what it is. And uh, I suspect that I am cautiously optimistic that Joe Biden will win a second term and he will serve through his term. And that will just be that'll be it. I just also think to some degree, this conversation is also being tainted by the right wing's perpetual discussion of Biden as if he's, you know, lost his grip on reality and the, the, this, you know, stringing together his verbal stumbles. And I mean, they, they settled on that ages ago, right? They tried making him creepy. It didn't work that well. Then they kind of shifted into sleepy, which is, you know, a little low energy jab. And then they shifted into, well, he's losing his marbles. Right. And there is, I think, some amount of playing into that framing because again, Trump is his contemporary. It's silly to talk about these two people like they're 20 years apart. I mean, it's four years that, you know, I mean, it's not like you hit the year of 80 and then it's like automatic going downhill. You know, Trump's in his late 70s. It's just not that different. So, yeah, I mean, I, w I will say that 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 there is, you know, tr <laughs> Trump definitely has a manic quality that yeah. in some ways makes him seem more dynamic, right? It's also true that, I mean, it's not an accident that everybody was, that, that there was all this chatter when he was president about like, does he need to take a cognitive test where he, where he's kind of seems to kind of not, not, you know, not know where he is and make these sort of aphasic kind of, you know, comments and stuff like this. Uh, you know, it, it, <laughs> I think that, um, I think Joe Biden has done a pretty good a pretty good job as, as president um, in an incredibly difficult uh, period. And he is frequently underestimated. And uh, what, what it all comes, what it all really comes down to though, I'm not trying to do like a commercial here for Joe Biden or a, a commercial for, for, for Kamala Harris. Uh, but in, pol in, in, in political activism, thinking, commentary, uh, it, it's good to kind of focus on things that are real and not things that are, that are completely absurd. Um, and that's why I, uh, I don't know. I wasn't impressed by that op-ed if that wasn't yeah. clear. And I just want to round it off by saying, you know, I don't think either of us is like super stoked that Biden is this old. I don't think that's like an optimal situation, but the reality of the situation we have is that there is an incumbent. And even though the incumbency bump is smaller than it was before, it exists and it'll help Joe Biden. And he is running against Donald Trump, barring some development that has not happened yet. And just in terms of being interested in preserving the democracy, Biden's the choice that we have, right? It's yeah. just, it's the safest. Well, that's, that, that's why, you know, when I also see people saying like, oh, I wish he wasn't this old. Like, as you say, you know, point taken. I also wish he wasn't this old, but like, or people like, Hey, someone's got to challenge him. Like that will go well. 
<laughs> like, first of all, that challenger will only will only succeed in making a a a six or a year long primary campaign about Joe Biden's age, and then he will lose. So you will have a a Joe Biden who is both weakened and old. Good job. You know, it's just <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, if if and, and frankly, I'll, I'll tell you this: there are certainly some people out there that kind of say, "Look." If he wants to run, he's going to run. There's nothing, you know, you, you can't deny him um, that run. But God, I, I wish he would. I wish he would just call it, you know, call it a day at at at, at one term. I'll be honest with you. Who's who's is there some kind of like killer candidate out there that I'm not that I'm not aware of? Now there are some people. I mean, Gretchen Whitmer. Um. Uh, uh, Gavin Newsom. There, you know, there are people out there with stature who've who've won a bunch of elections, um, but it, it, is either one of them necessarily going to do better than Joe Biden? I'm not sure. You know, there is this point. He won once already. That's a pretty good selling point as 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 presidents go, winning, right? And uh, so there you go. All right. So let's talk about the oral arguments uh, yesterday, Tuesday. This was when Biden's student debt relief plan came to the court. It came in the form of two separate cases. The first is essentially states v. the plan. The second one is absolutely bizarre and just the weirdest thing. It's like two people who have student loan debt challenging the plan. And their argument is... They want to bring down this plan. So this, so the education secretary will go through a different statutory power to set up a different debt relief plan, but this one would involve a notice and comment period. So these borrowers could make their testimony heard and perhaps angle to get more relief out of the plan. So, okay, a little, <laughs> a little mind boggling. Right. Um, but these uh, these were the arguments that came before the court. The first one they heard was the states v. the plan. And a, a lot of it is on standing. A lot of both of these cases is about standing. But the first argument was so dominated from the right-wing judges by uh, the major questions doctrine, which we've talked on the show about before. Quick summary, it's about when agencies try to take actions of, quote, political or economic significance. Um, by the way, this is like pretty much just made up out of thin air. But when they do that, courts no longer defer to agency interpretation of the laws that are empowering them to act, but rather require explicit writs of action from Congress to authorize that action. And of course, what is great political economic significance, totally subjective. What is an explicit so, enough law? Totally subjective. Let me ask you this. So we know that um, for a mix of reasons, the, uh, you know, the right wing group on the court is very focused on basically reducing agency power as you yeah. so and you have this 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 major questions doctrine. And, and in general, what you have here is a a great assertion of power by the uh, judicial branch exactly. to kind of, you know, basically we are the final say, not just on 
you know, kind of structural constitutional matters, but also kind of like what's big and what's not big, what's important and what and 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 what's not important. And I think the key there are two points here that I think go to the like, let's let's set aside the um, the obvious ideological and um, political angles to this. The idea is basically, you know, if, if you if you take it on its own terms, the idea is, look, we have a Congress because Congress decides what the law is. Is this chemical illegal? Is that chemical illegal? Is, you know, all this kind of stuff. And basically, you don't want to, it's not okay to set up these, this agency, yeah, agency structure that is in essence kind of like an unelected legislature that is kind of making, in practice, um, making its own laws that we call regulations. Okay, so that's the, that's the concept on its own terms. But there's two problems with that kind of within the context of that argument itself. The first is, in almost every case, these laws were written with this regulatory regime in mind. So in, in this case, I believe that the actual law with the student debt thing is only a few years old, right? It's 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 not even it's not three. Right. Okay. So it's not even it's not even like it goes back to like the late sixties or early seventies when kind of the whole architecture of student loan, you know, federally subsidized or federally guaranteed student loans was created. It's a relatively recent thing. So by the time that in two thousand three when that was done, you've had the EPA and and you know all the agencies have been doing this forever. So Congress, it is a hundred percent clear that Congress envisaged agencies making regulations under this law. And it was written with that in mind. So the idea that anybody is, um, the idea that anybody's usurping anything here is, is I think, f is factually false. And even, and, and the, the smart uh, conservative legal types don't even really uh, contest that point because there's no way to contest that point. It's just, it's factually demonstrable there's no that's it's clearly the case what they say is congress was being irresponsible congress is not allowed to defer that to these to these agencies a the other point though is that if you know and this and this is a standard that we that we um that historically we have implied uh applied and still do in the context of these kind of arguments in other cases where uh it's not things that conservatives just don't want to happen in general because all you co college debtors are lazy bums and, and made bad decisions, right? Um, what we usually say is if Congress thinks that, that this is wrong, pass a law. You can do that. Just pass a law. Now, I, 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 it, it, in, in general, um, you can, and, and that, that normally kind of, you know, if that's really an issue, then, then, then that's the solution to it. Now, what we have is though, it's, it's important to have a, a kind of realist view of the big picture here over the last half century, we have developed a process where, there is basically a minority veto in Congress via the filibuster. And so in most cases, a majority cannot act 
the you know whoever has 51 votes can't act so you open up this space where where congress is 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 not able to and with the combination of that and a stacked federal judiciary you have the all the structure in place and all the excuses in place to just say well this is now up to uh sam alito right and then the couple of other things at work here is that they can shroud this in a lot of talk about restoring the authority to the most democratic branch, the people's branch. You know, legislators are elected by people directly. This is the better way to do it um, while just kind of not. And they're using that to juxtapose it with the people who work at agencies, right, saying no one elected them. They're bureaucrats kind of thing where the reality of their use is a they come in well you know some of them are kind of non-political people but the people who st- the head the agencies they come in with the president right so arguably they were kind of elected by extension but even if that argument strikes you as weak nobody elected the supreme court justices so and they're the ones who are really shifting all this immense power to themselves both in action by striking down agency power or by inaction like letting one district court enjoin an agency action nationwide so uh that's part of the right wing pipeline that has been kind of dominating Uh, anti-administration action of late where, you know, you find uh, a division that only has one or two judges. Um, You you can, so you have a good chance of getting one of your ideological bent and then they can do a nationwide injunction. So you can stop the Biden administration from doing basically anything as long as you file in like Amarillo and are sure to get the judge you want. And then particularly Texas has been such the pipeline for this because governed by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. So really good chance that you, the right wing litigant, win there too. And then you're depending on, you know, the Supreme Court to kind of step in uh, and, and save you. But even and even if, you know, I, that being a risky proposition to begin with, also a lot of time elapses in that process. Well, I think also that it gets, it gets to a key point that the current majority on the court is sort of collusive with this process because in as the system is supposed to work if a if if basically a local judge you know a a a district court judge federal district court judge which is in the federal context a local trial court judge basically you know overrules administration action nationwide the court should step in and say Okay, th- this has to con- this has to work its way through the courts. We are we are vacating your injunction. It apply. I mean, they could they could you know they could even jump in and overrule it um, uh, uh, totally, or or rather the the circuit should. So, but you know it it's this only works because the circuit the circuit court in that case the fifth circuit and the supreme court are kind of in on it. Because they could either could step in and, again, not necessarily overrule the ruling, but say you can't you, you, you can't basically run the country from your, you know, from your courthouse down in Texas. You've you've this is this is one case. Um, it will now be, you know, it 
maybe there's maybe it's enjoined locally, blah, 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 blah. In any case, that's the point. The Supreme Court is in on it. Which, interestingly, that argument was voiced by the unlikeliest of sources Gorsuch, yesterday. Yeah. Um, I wrote about this for Prime members, but Neil Gorsuch at one point kind of had this little back and forth with uh, the Solicitor General uh, saying, you know, I want to give you another chance to talk about universal vacator here for my friends. And the point being is that uh, the D.C. Circuit deals with a ton of agency cases and uh, Kavanaugh, John Roberts and Katanji Brown Jackson all come from the D.C. Circuit. And so it creates this weird thing of odd bedfellows where the D.C. Circuit is kind of constantly using you know, universal vacator. Same thing as like a national injunction, stopping agency action across the country habitually. And other people are saying, kind of making the argument we're saying, which is that is an insane amount of power to give one federal judge. Um, and and then Gorsuch says this thing where he's like, uh, yeah, talk about taking power, you know, putting power into the courts. You know, you can have two people who don't like a federal program. They go to court and bam, you know, nobody gets it. And then in the odd bedfellows piece, Katanji Brown Jackson comes in to argue the point, you know, but it's a huge feature of the legal landscape right now, um, which came up to a, a degree in this case, but kind of getting back to the specifics here, the brunt of it is fighting over whether this law called the HEROES Act empowers the education secretary to forgive large amounts of student debt. And the way you can see how silly the major questions piece of this is, is that they just kept saying, you know, the sum of the loans that will be forgiven. And it's just the kind of thing where it's like, for sure, that's a lot of money. A lot of Americans have student debt and there are a lot of Americans to begin with. So you could kind of make the argument that every federal program is a lot of money, you know, by by what standard are we even talking about? Well, let me ask you this, though. I, I, I take it that the law in question, as I understand it, allows the education secretary, i.e., you know, the president, but acting through the education secretary to basically... Um, change the terms, you know, write down the terms because you're not going to write up. You're not going to say, hey, things are weird. You owe 100000 now you owe 200000 So it's always going to be, you know, writing things down in the nature of things. That the, that the education secretary has the discretion to do that in national emergencies. So now, obviously, this hangs on COVID as the national emergency. Um, it is probably a, a, a cynic could make the argument, a skeptic could make the argument, well, I was hearing a lot about debt forgiveness before COVID. So I don't think this just came up because COVID. And yet, there's no, there's, there's no, there's no question that that counts as a national emergency. Like we also had national emergencies that have, I mean, I think we still have the uh, AMUF, right? The kind of, we still have national emergencies and that's why we have soldiers in Syria and all these kind of bizarre things that are clearly up. So there's an emergency. That's not, that's not made up. That's not a stretch. It's definitely an emergency. Um, and so I guess my, I guess my, my, my question indirectly to the justices is, yeah, justices is Congress seems to have decided to give this authority. And and the Congress didn't say, unless it's too much money, don't do it. 
Right. So that is the bulk of the government's argument here, because the relevant part of the statute says the secretary, quote, may waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to the student financial assistance programs as the secretary, quote, deems necessary in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency. I mean, and it, Kagan kind of jumped in and said this at one point where she's like, we deal with really, you know, vague or archaic or confusing congressional statutes all the time where you have to kind of try to figure out what they were saying. She said, this one could not be more clear. And it really couldn't be. And that's why you had arguments where people are fighting over the dead the definition of wave trying right. to say like well this is a whole new program they wouldn't they were only envisioning changes to existing programs it's like where does it say that i mean this is giving the secretary broad latitude the real problem well, is the right-wing justices don't want any agency to have broad latitude at least while there's a democrat in the white house isn't isn't the argument i i i understood it though at least that the argument is Congress cannot do this. Not that now. I guess they're trying to kind of argue it. You know, they're they're trying to make multiple arguments at once. Congress couldn't have meant this, but don't they have an overarching argument that is their real argument that it is not okay for Congress to give what they would argue would be blank checks to these administrative agencies? Ergo, it doesn't matter what Congress meant. It's right. not. It's not okay at all. I mean, that's goes to kind of this lurking underlying theory of non-delegation, which is shot through this, which basically holds uh, agencies can't, you know, quote unquote, legislate at all. So it would mean that Congress has to pass every, like a law for every single thing that agencies do, which that is like even more maximal than major questions. And there is some doubt about how much the various Supreme Court justices have kind of bought in on this. We know that Clarence Thomas is like a big non-delegation guy, but it's come up a bit less and it's hard to tell how fully the, even the right-wing justices would embrace us because even just the logistical realities would be insane. I mean, you the reason you have an agency, say the EPA, right, is that it's full of experts and scientists and technicians who are able to do the daily work of the agency, like, you know, making tiny, tiny, tiny regulations for how you deal with this chemical or how you dispose of X, Y, Z. I mean, Congress has neither the time nor the expertise, nor as you pointed out with the filibuster, the ability to pass legislation at a clip that would have to kind of substitute in for the agencies. But in this case, they were keeping it smaller. They were keeping it about what this law says, which put them in the frequently kind of tricky position of saying that the many pauses we saw instituted by both the Trump administration and the Biden administration in terms of paying back the loans, that was okay. But now canceling the debt, that's a bridge too far. And I mean, that's just, it's a made up argument. I guess I, well, I know that there was, I mean, I think, I don't remember what the case is, but I know this has come up in our discussions on the podcast before that there have been a number of cases where the court has decided that it's just not a problem that even though even though congress said very clearly what they wanted to do they have basically said hey this is it's impossible to to get inside congress's head here we have no idea ergo made you know important questions or major questions or 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 whatever it is but but i'm interested it's that part of it is interesting to me because again it seems if you are talking about 
a, a textual analysis of the law. The law doesn't include any of this stuff. It just says they can waive or change if, you know, in the case of a national emergency. I don't think anybody can say that COVID was not a national emergency. It clearly was. Even if you can say, well, they're using it, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, it seems they're really making it, they're really making a non-delegation argument. But I guess that that for, for whatever reasons, they're not really willing to uh, embrace the full implications of that. So they sort of do it on the cheap by kind of saying, oh, you know, who knows what this means, even though, I mean, the text is clear and broad. Everything we know about, you know, there's there's no legislative history that has people saying, well, sure hope they don't do anything that costs a lot because that would be fucked up. <laughs> you know, so so it, it, it really is non-delegation they're going for here kind of on the sly. Right. Ideological non-delegation, because as they made very clear, they just primarily don't like the policy. I mean, it, I thought it was kind of embarrassing that John Roberts kept making this argument of like, you know, you've got your elite student debt holder, right? But then you got Joe P Q Driveway who chose not to go to college so he wouldn't incur debt and he set up a lawn care service. This is, I'm not exaggerating, this is what he said. And he said, you know, how is that fair? How is that fair to him? Which first of all, I'm sorry, are you on a Fox News panel? Like your job here is to interpret what the law says, not to scrutinize you know, the political aspects of this policy, that is in no way your purview. And then I, you know, this is one where the Solicitor General is like really, really good, but this was a question that she didn't, she was seemed to struggle with a little bit. And then kind of Kagan jumped in and said, Congress passed a law empowering the secretary to forgive student loans. It did not pass a law empowering the secretary to forgive lawn care debts. Like we're talking about a law, you know, and then as soon as he said that Alito jumped in and he's like, you know, why is it fair? Why is it fair? Is it just that those people are less deserving of solicitude? I, I just spitballing here, you know, and like kind of badgering her to say, what does that secretary think about this? Like, does he think it's fair that people without a college degree won't benefit from this? And it's so, so Fox Newsian because you could make that argument about every benefit the federal government ever gives out. It gives out basically nothing to everyone. You have to be a veteran or low income or disabled or, you know, getting a business startup loan. Like you have to you know, yeah, there's other things that are much more arbitrary than like being poor or being a veteran. They're just kind of like some people get stuff, and and often it is really unfair. Yeah. Like why do you know why do why do we subsidize farmers? Exactly. And I then, mean, you yeah. know, you had uh, Katanji Brown Jackson kind of come in and say like, well, what about PPP loans? That wasn't exactly fair to people who don't own a business. And it's like, you know, exactly. It's just this, you know, and I guess it's just so. Well, frustrating because you hear these people say, you know, straight shooters, you know, we're just here to interpret the law. And they're like whining on the stand about how unfair Democrats are to college grads. Well, I, I think, you know, the, there's there's two points. One is that to the point you just made, it's I don't think there is any argument that even the court could come up with that this kind of uh, intra sectoral class equity is a thing. That's just not a thing. That's not something the court has any 
it doesn't matter what they think, whether it's fair or not. It's just, there's, there's nothing to stand on uh, there, although certainly there are people in the country who argue about this, who make this argument. But again, it's, it's not – it is not a judicial question at all. The other point, which again is not narrowly judicial, but that court is made up of people who've basically – never made first contact with manual labor of any sort, <laughs> yeah. and in many cases, have never made contact with the private sector at all. I mean, these are all people, and look, I went to some fancy colleges. That wasn't kind of where my family was from, but for whatever reason, I did. So I'm not like beating up on that, but you have to have a little self-awareness. These are all people who went to high-powered undergraduate institutions, and in almost all cases, then went to Harvard or Yale Law School, then were clerks, then in certain cases went and worked for the government. Occasionally, they did uh, you know some brief period working for a white shoe law firm. But I mean, <laughs> these are the the, the idea that that um, that they are. Uh, uh, you know, standing up for the non-college educated is 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 comical and absurd. They are, again, they are creatures of elite education in a way that is the case of almost no one else. You know, at least people who have like graduate education, like PhDs and stuff, they have some experience being poverty stricken because you have to be poverty stricken when you're in graduate school. You don't when you're in law school because you're about to make a huge amount of money. So again, the idea that they are the voice of 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 uh, hard you know hard uh, scrappy uh, landscapers is 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 ridiculous, and I guess they would say, "Look, uh, we're not saying that's going to be in our in our ruling, but we're just kind of like, you know." We're just shooting the breeze up here, letting you know what we think. Yeah, I mean, it's Tucker Carlson playing blue collar, right? Like feigning outrage for the less educated masses with his, you know, fanning himself with his Harvard degree. But the other piece of this, too, is like, I understand that painting people who went to college as like pampered, privileged elites does a lot of work for the right. The people who still have student loans are like, not among the most elite ranks of the college graduates, you know, like there are people who can afford undergrad with no loans at all. So it's, it is interesting that, you know, the work of college grad goes so far that you don't even have to focus on the ones who could easily afford it. You can still focus on ones who have like hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt that they started incurring at age 17. And that's still, you know, a good target for those uh, in this kind of right-wing media ecosystem pipeline, which apparently includes many of the justices. Well, the one of the, I think one of the things that is, that is pretty relevant to mention is that the, the true elites, or at least future elites that are going to Ivy League schools and stuff like that, they have, yes, they have, well, they have loans, although a lot of the Ivies nowadays give a lot of grants because they're, 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 um, uh, they're endowments. Are, are so big. But the, the relevant point is, I think the, the, the best analyses of who benefits from these programs are not, you know, uh, uh, people getting philosophy degrees at Yale. They're people in many cases who went to 
uh, undergraduate institutions that do not have a lot of credentialing prestige. So they're not making a lot of money in their in in the job that they got after college, but they've got lots of debt. So it tends to be people on the on the low on the on the academic prestige and therefore income generation spectrum that are that are you know that this applies to and the people who if if like for whatever reason you went to an extremely expensive college and basically took out loans for every dollar for 4 years $10,000 isn't going to accomplish much for you. That's what I was about to say, which, you know, we heard so much at these arguments of $400 billion, half a trillion dollars. When I went to Georgetown, it was $80,000 a year. So 10000 is really not going to put much of a dent in that or 20000 if you were on a Pell Grant. But, you know, this, this always happens with programs that are meant to particularly help people who need money, right? Like this happens with... Medicaid. It happens with Medicare. It happens with everything that isn't just like a blank check to the defense department where everyone's like, I don't know, how much can we spend on this? How much can we spend? This is so expensive. It's just like so notable what programs we talk ad nauseum about their cost and what programs are just kind of blank check. Everyone, you know, all the senators sign it. It's not even a story. There's that. It is, it is true too that, I mean, the, and, 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 and look, um, I think the PPP loans were critical in keeping the economy afloat and keeping people in their jobs during that period. But it was a huge, huge amount of money. Totally dwarfs what we're what we're what we're talking about here. Um, and in the nature of things, it well, you know, it helped everybody because again, it even though it helped wealthy people a lot. It also kept a lot of people from from not having a job through the worst of the pandemic, and that's a big deal. Even if in dollar amounts, it doesn't it doesn't equate to all that much. Anyway, boo Sam Alito. Yeah. Boo. So basically, yeah. I'll I'll throw my prediction hat into the ring here. Um, I think they'll knock down the case brought by the two student borrowers because it's so freaking weird, um, and their standing is so dubious. And I think they will. Uh, sustain the the other case brought by the states, even though the thing and will kill the student debt program. But the thing I'm most interested to see in that decision is where Amy Coney Barrett lands, because she and to some extent Kavanaugh do like to appear at oral arguments that they are hearing both sides and they have questions for both sides. Whereas like Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito have just gotten kind of lazy, like they don't they don't put up any appearances. They basically just kind of, you know, Clarence Thomas asks his first question and then he just kind of shuts up for the rest of it. Alito will get in there and kind of play Fox News panelist on the bench and everything. But they don't, it's never a mystery, right? But the other two right. do a little bit more, you know, poking both sides or saying like, I think this part of your argument uh, is, a, is a bit weak, even to the kind of side who they ide- ideologically align with. Um and it was interesting because Barrett just seemed very, very unconvinced by some of the honestly huge stretch arguments that Missouri had to make to kind of justify its standing. So it'll be interesting because, I mean, it, it wouldn't matter, right? Six, three, five, four, same result. But I'm going to kind of keep my eye on where she comes down in this one. Well, right. So, and, and but I guess the point is, is, is that for anything to matter, they would have to get both. And John Roberts clearly hates the student loan program, so it's not going to be him. 
Right, right, right. So they have to basically get Kavanaugh and Barrett to to is. Well, let me ask you this: Is there any is there any thought that there's a middle ground? I, I mean, I don't know what it could be. I mean, it wouldn't. I mean, the one thing more ridiculous than just saying you can't do this would be to say like five thousand you can do. Right, exactly. We're going to make it five or so. I assume there's no. It's kind I of. I don't all, think it, so. It's seen as all or nothing. Right. I mean, and there's a notion that he or the administration could like try again under a different law, you know, but I mean, it's, it's, I think it's pretty clear that if this goes down, it's, you know, kind of down until you can rustle up enough of Congress to pass it themselves. Right, right. Um, I will tell you, I will say this, and then I, I, I guess we're out of time. Um, I did a post this morning, basically saying that, that people who think the Supreme Court is uh, uh, corrupt and out of control, need when this stuff happens need to be saying this is why we can't have nice things because the supreme court uh is basically deciding it can run every you know run against the supreme court and bring it into the political realm that is not uh that's not a bad thing that's a good thing it's a necessary thing i think that's really important and i think it's something that 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 democrats because of you know everything's a little different after dobbs but because of still a residual, you know, we can't question the court, the, the all that kind of stuff. But I, but some so, something came up, and it was one of our colleagues. Um, and I don't think I'm I'm outing anybody because we have a, a generally young workforce. A lot of people have student loans. One of one of our colleagues at TPM told me that when this person, uh, I guess this person, like a lot of people who were eligible, applied under this program for the relief. Okay. And this person told me that seemingly because of that application, this person, every time there is an event in this process of the, of the, uh, you know, judicial, uh, scrutiny of this program, they get an email from the department of education basically saying, okay, you know, we went before the Supreme court today. Uh, Supreme court seems pretty down on it. It'll be a pretty big bummer if Sam Alito turns out to be a total dick and and deprives you of your uh, of of your of your loan cancellation. Now it doesn't say exactly that, but the point is is that the the agency in question, the Department of Education, is keeping all the all the potential recipients up to date and and kind of making clear this is the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court might take this away, so there actually is a bit of that, even at the official level, not at a campaign level, of the government is keeping people, keeping potential recipients up to date. Like the court might, might, you know, might torch this. Let's, let's hope for the best. And then before we wrap, I do want to get a little into the lab leak stuff because there's been a, a lot on that front this week. And, and the primary developments are the Department of Energy. This came out in a uh, Wall Street Journal piece. Basically, the Department of Energy has like changed its position on the origin of the, you know, the COVID virus, which is they now think that it came from the from a lab versus the kind of quote unquote natural origin theory. And, you know, I'm sure all our listeners know this has been hotly debated from the beginning of the pandemic, basically. And the way the government is kind of broken down onto this is that there is no cohesive 
everyone agrees hypothesis. You've got DOE and FBI saying from mild to moderate confidence that they think it came from a lab. You've got other Department saying, we don't know, like CIA saying, we don't have enough information to make a call. Other people still kind of err on the side of they think it was natural origin, you know, jumping from from animal to human. And even, you know, the DOE's thing kind of concluded with saying, we're not sure, low confidence. And their their assessment is based on classified documents that no one else has seen or, you know, normal people haven't seen. So it's kind of hard to judge what they're basing that off of to begin with. But President Biden had asked various departments who have kind of like investigatory realms to look into this. And he called it a 90 day sprint and and see what you come up with. And basically it was inconclusive. Everyone had kind of different uh, hypotheses. No one was super confident. And that makes sense, right? Because with other pandemics or, uh, you know, diseases like uh, Ebola and HIV, it took decades to figure out where exactly it came from. And then on top of it, you have China being incredibly uncooperative. Um, You know, from the beginning of they killed all the animals at the market where it might have started before it could be tested. You know, it's not like they're helping investigators figure anything out. So anyway, that's the that was the development. And then you had Chris Ray, who, for reasons passing understanding, continues to be FBI director, went on Fox News and gave this quote, which blows my mind because I think it's so completely irresponsible. But he said, the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. OK, whatever. We know that's the FBI's position. Um and there and there are concerns that they're in the wrong hands. Some bad guys, a hostile na- nation state, or terrorist, or criminal. The threats that could pose. So here you're talking about a potential leak from a Chinese con- government-controlled lab that killed millions of Americans, and that's precisely what that capacity was designed for. Okay, so that's kind of the crux of his quote. Coming from what we know, which is that the FBI still says they don't have high confidence in thinking that it came from a lab, but that's just kind of their best guess. He's going to go on Fox News and strongly suggest the bioweapon theory, which is not what DOE said. It's not what the FBI said. It's not what anyone's saying. No one even knows where it came from. No one is saying, yeah, and we're pretty sure it's a bioweapon. It's funny. I, you know, I, I, I saw that quote immediately when this came out yesterday and I, and, and that was totally my interpretation and it's still my interpretation. I have seen a number of people say that if you look at the whole thing that they think what he meant was when he, that clause, when he says that's what that capacity is for, that he's really referencing that's why the FBI has all this bioweapons capacity, because we need to know when, when bad guys do this. Now, syntactically, I think the most logical interpretation is that he's saying that, and that's why they had this, because they were designing it to kill Americans, and then it leaked, and now we're all dead. Um, I am somewhat persuaded now that it was a very uh, extremely awkward way of of saying the thing about that's why the the FBI's capacity exists. But I only think that because it would be so insane to make this bioweapons claim that I kind of think that even the the less likely syntactic interpretation 
is probably right. But at a minimum, at a minimum, they should put out a statement. Hey, if anybody was unclear, I was not saying that it's a bioweapon, even though in my interview, I kind of did say that. Even beyond that, why are you going on Fox News? Mm-hmm. Kind of right when we're in the midst of this big case where it's clear that Fox News is led by a, a the, the whole business is based on institutionalized lying. And even beyond that, even beyond that, and this this is the important point I think for everybody to to sort of absorb. There are I, th- I I'm going to get the number wrong. I think there are like 16 or maybe it's 18 agencies in the U.S. government that have intelligence uh, organizations within them, offices within them. State Department has one. FBI has one. CIA has one. DOE has one. Lots of different agencies, even ones that you wouldn't expect necessarily, right? And there's. I think a dozen and a half or something like that. All to, there, there's uh, each branch of the armed forces has one, right? There, there's there's a bunch of of uh, you know, and there's there's the one that does kind of uh, signals intelligence, and then there is God, I'm spacing. It's it's the it's that one agency in the big block building out in uh, out in Maryland that does signals intercepts and stuff like this. In any case. All of those together is the intelligence community, right? And so what you're trying to do in a case like this, so what Biden was doing is everybody, let's get everybody's agencies together. Let's figure this out. And as Kate said, everybody was all over the place. So there was no consensus. Um, Some, and and it's, it's, it's complicated by the fact that, as Kate said, these judgments are based on classified information. So we can't really judge what they're basing it on. But what's really important to understand is that when they say that's our judgment with low confidence, what that means is something like we've looked at all the stuff and we think it's like 60-40 or 55-45. Like all things being equal, we'd say lab leak, but like, again, 45-55. You know, barely more likely than not. And and when they say moderate confidence, 65, 35, we don't know. We don't know. And, and I do think what we should collectively be focused on is that we should be, we should keep in mind that we don't know and, and not let it slide into that this has somehow been proven or a fact. I, I I really don't know. I, I, I think genuinely we don't know. And it is important to say, too, the fact that we don't know is largely the fault of the Chinese government. They, are, they have been completely not forthcoming. Um, and on its face, that makes them seem kind of guilty, like they have something to cover up. The only kind of the only counter to that is they're never forthcoming. It's not a forthcoming state. They don't. They don't. They don't open stuff up. But whatever. We don't know. It, it's it's possible, but we don't know. Yeah. So a few things. First, even with the most generous interpretation of Ray's statement, if the if the capacity clause was about the FBI, 
I think even if you lopped that off completely, he went out of his way in these few lines. He was willing to talk about it before he kind of got into, and most of this is classified and I can't say anything, to juxtapose uh, we're on the lookout for people with bad intentions to be looking to use this kind of stuff. And we know that this you know, disease got out and killed millions of Americans. I mean, it is really hard to read that statement as doing anything but like kind of banging the war drums, um, which, you know, like let's kind of kill, a, you know, get into an unfathomable war with China, right? Like that's a such a scary prospect. And the fact that he's kind of going on Fox News, fanning these flames, which, you know, at the at the worst can make people hungrier for war with China at the least probably makes life kind of shitty here in America for Asian Americans. Kind of let's let's re-up that time when they were all getting, you know, when people were getting screamed at on subways and everything. Um, but the thing that makes me so angry about that is like, you'd expect that because he is the Trump appointed FBI director. So it's not like a colossal shock that he goes on Fox News to do a lot of a little anti-China segment, which again, begs the question, why is he still in this job? Why do Democrats incessantly agree that only Republicans can do law enforcement? They're just the only ones that can handle it, whether it's a Republican president or a Democratic president. The guy who runs the FBI is going to be Republican. The guy who runs CIA probably also going to be Republican. It's just like, you won. Act like you won. Put your own guy in there. Put someone in there who's not going to go on Fox News and stir the freaking pot. Yeah, I mean, I have, uh, you know, I'm probably I'm probably too old school about this. The and uh, this is one of these things where Trump broke the system. And I think a lot of us are trying to figure out how to operate within Trump's broken system. You're not supposed to fire the FBI director. You're, you're really only supposed to do it for cause. It's not like other government things. It's it's it, and it was done that way precisely, it was done that way because of the experience with J. Edgar Hoover, that the FBI is a powerful enough thing that it should not be the incumbent's president, the incumbent president's person, right? That kind of serves at their, at their, at their pleasure. James Comey should have never been fired, even though he's another Republican who was appointed by a Democrat, because as you say, only Republicans can be FBI director. Um, so I still have this residual kind of, we need to get back to, we don't fire FBI directors and make them creatures of the president. Um, but there are a lot of uh, Ray continues to um, show his partisan colors in mm -hmm. many ways. And this was an example. This was not, it was, at best, poor judgment to do this as a, a I, like, I'm not even sure when, the, when was the last time Chris Ray did a, a news interview? It's not like a really common thing. Mm -hmm. um, and again, like, everybody's seeing now that Fox is a fake news organization. Even people who are kind of normally its big defenders, it's not a great, it's not a great time to do it. Um, but there we are. There we yeah, are. No, that's a good point. And the the last thing I wanted to say about this is 
the driving argument for people who like kind of get into these fights on Twitter about the origin of it, it, it just tends to be we've got to know what happened so we can prevent it from happening again. And that has always struck me as just a pretty thin argument for the kind of necessity of knowing because we know, right, that it either somehow came from a lab, a lab there, um, or that it jumped from animal to human. Okay. I mean, the natural kind of conclusion of that is, okay, now, especially that research is becoming so decentralized and more countries are kind of getting into the game, it's becoming pretty abundantly clear that to the extent that we can, which is, of course, limited, right? Because this is different countries do their own research. There should be international standards for safety at these kind of labs. It should be held to a high level. The best you know, the United States can kind of use its power on the world stage. It should be to push in that direction. And then in terms of the natural origin, there's a reason that scientists have been saying for years that a pandemic is all but inevitable. And it's a result of climate change. It's a result of uh, habitat destruction of humans coming into closer contact with wild animals than happened before of the way that we farm meat where all the animals are crushed in together and, and it's so easy for disease to spread. I mean, we can kind of take mitigation steps before we know exactly how this started. And it might be years until we know uh, if we ever do at all, because like you say, China is not going to help. Um, so you know, I think there is some amount that this is an academic parlor game for people, which is why I think people are so kind of like interested and, and fascinated. But I find it really, really worrying um, this this Chris Ray thing of but maybe it was to attack us. Maybe it was this came to us from China who wanted to kill us because that leads down some really dangerous and scary roads. Yeah, I think. It's one of these things that for scientists, it's a really important question to understand the origins because that's how you learn more. Um, I think everybody realizes, and this is a big part of the motivation, that if China was running a sloppy lab and that led to the whole world getting like completely fucked up for two or three years and tens of millions of people dying that is a heavy that is a big thing that is that is something that would be very hard to live down and so there are a lot of people who want that to be true or maybe they think it's true and they want china to be held accountable because they think it is true um and then there's a lot of people who think you said it was fake news, and now it's true, and yada, and yada. You know, so there's there's all these overlapping, uh, overlapping things. It, at a minimum, it's clear that that this kind of research can potentially lead to this happening, and we've seen how bad it is when it happens. So, as you say, we can we can we can tighten up the labs without knowing for sure which which thing happened and um again the biggest thing to me is is that people are not comfortable with we don't know 
and there's this big desire to go from, you know, some agency thinking it is slightly more likely than not that it happened this way rather than that way. And just like, yep, China did it. And again, it's entirely possible. That's how it started. We just, we just have no idea anyway. Yeah. Yep. What else? That it? That's it. I guess we've covered it. All right. Well, listen, people, uh, extra, extra high powered Josh Marshall podcast this week. And remember that, um, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's cold brew ice coffee. You can get 25% off your next order at Grady's cold with promo code TPM. That's Grady's cold with promo code TPM. And that's it. All right. See you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter, Kate Riga and TPM founder, editor in chief, Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all of our TPM members who make all of this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. 